We have sung of God's greatness. We have read His Word, but we do not even begin to begin going through the exposition of His Holy Word without going to Him in prayer and asking Him to open our eyes and our hearts. So let's, let's do that now. God, You are a good and gracious and loving God. We come now for the feeding of our souls. You are so good to give us Your Word. Father, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by the very Word of God. So give us truth. Stir our hearts for a zeal for Your Word. And God, not just in a book, may You open our eyes to see Your Word introducing and declaring who You really are. God, as You do it for us, we ask that You'll do it for the Husa of Niger. Over 10 million people, a precious people trapped in the false religion of Islam. For I was hungry and You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and You invited me in. Father, I pray that the few Husa believers will be emboldened this morning with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That a church will be established and more churches will grow among the Husa people, Father. That You will call godly men to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and to feed Your sheep. That they will go out among the rest of the Husa and declare the good news of Jesus Christ and that more will come to the saving knowledge. That we will have a chance to call more of them brother and sister of Christ. Father, we ask that You will send out missionaries all among Your church, all over the world. And Father, may You call some directly to the Husa. Father, may it be from this congregation if it be Your will. God, a man and a woman, a young man, a young woman, may they be called from our midst to declare the good news of Jesus Christ with those who need to hear it. Father, that's our prayer in our own community that we will not just come on this day, that we will not just be Sunday Christians, that we will not be quasi-Christians, that we will not see the goodness and the morality of it and that be it, but may we be sold out to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. May we treasure Him in our hearts and may Your grace abound in us and overflow in us. And we look to our neighbor, we look to our unsaved family members, co-workers and friends, all those we come in contact with and declare what our purpose and our mission is and that is to point them to Your Son, Jesus. God, we are not so prideful to believe that we are the only Gospel-centered Jesus-exalting church here. We ask for other fellowships in our community, gospel-centered churches, that faithful brothers, faithful preachers will give the good news of Jesus that when they stand in the pulpit that they will declare the truth of Your Word and that it will not fall on deaf ears, but all of Your people here in this community will be fed this morning. 
that we will be strengthened to your service, that we will see beyond our own lives and our own selves, and we will be united with one voice declaring our great God and our need of Him. Father, we ask that you'll be with Pastor Kogo, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Nakuru. Father, do the same thing among that fellowship. Strengthen Pastor Kogo and the rest of our brothers and sisters there. Father, we ask that you will be with the North American Mission Board with their mission to plant more churches across North America. Father, at one time, our land was declared reached with the gospel, but Father, we know that you are the one who changes hearts. We ask that you will use this ministry to reach more with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in your son's great name we ask all of this. Do your work today, we ask. Amen. Let's look at where we have come so far in the book of Nehemiah. The Jewish people, the the people of God, have turned away from Him. And after a while, after some warnings and God's patience, God brought judgment upon them. The Jewish nation was split into two. The northern kingdom fell pretty quickly to the Assyrians. They were overrun really quick. The southern kingdom of Judah held on for a little bit longer, but they also fell to the Babylonians. The Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem. They sacked it and they destroyed the monuments and the buildings. They took down the city walls and they demolished all of it. And they took the Jews to Babylon for 70 years. During that time, the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. And they began to rule over God's people. God made it clear that all of this happened because His people were unfaithful to His covenant. They were unfaithful to their promise to worship their God, to be a people set apart for His special purposes. But God is always faithful, isn't He? Our God is always steadfast. When He makes a promise, He fulfills it. He always keeps His Word. And He had promised to be faithful to His people. Even in that judgment, He planned to restore His people to covenantal faithfulness. And ultimately to keep that covenant among His people through His own Son, Jesus Christ. And for this to happen, the people needed to be brought back. Israel needed to be restored. The city of uh, Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt. And the city walls needed to go up again in order to protect the city and to protect the people. So God begins to return the exile, and He did it in three waves. And in the third wave, we come to meet Nehemiah. Nehemiah served the Persian king Artaxerxes, and he asked the king if he could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem. 
The king agrees, and he even gave him whatever Nehemiah needed in order to make that happen. There has been a lot of years that the Jews have been away, and the surrounding people around Jerusalem had come to enjoy prominence over the Jews. And when they hear that the Jews have returned, that they are rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, they feel threatened. And they mock and they threaten to attack the city and attack the Jews. Nehemiah rallies the Jews to both defend the city and to continue the Lord's work. We had the great picture last week of them holding a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And we're told that it was God who frustrated the enemies and who thwarted their plans. And Nehemiah tells the people in chapter 4, verse 20, God will fight for us. We are not alone. God's people, God has not given us a mission and left us to ourselves to fulfill it. We are not alone. Our God will protect us and He will continue what He has given us to do. With this in mind, we're told in verse 21 of chapter 4 that they continued in the work. God's people trusted in God and they came together in the face of opposition that surrounded them on all sides. You'll remember that the city was completely surrounded, but yet they trusted God. This past week, I watched a movie. It was made back in the 1960s called Zulu. I don't know if you've seen it. It depicted the battle of Rourke's Drift in 1879 when a small British detachment faced an overwhelming force of fierce Zulu warriors. It's one of those epic movies that's been made that shows the vast battle scenes The small mission where the British detachment was was surrounded by the Zulus. They would see 3,000 Zulus come up on the mountaintops against a force of 150. This was a small force facing a much larger force. Chapter 4 in Nehemiah is one of those epic scenes. The city of Jerusalem is surrounded by this overwhelming force. You see, the difference, though, in that movie and what we read in chapter 4 is that there is no fighting that goes on. God stays the hand of the enemy. Chapter 4 is a picture of God's people coming together against an outside enemy and showing courage and fortitude and trusting in God, not because of themselves, Not because of what they've done, what he has done for them, but simply trusting in who God says he is. Chapter 5 gives us a different picture of these same people. The same people who just a chapter before have now come divided. The outside enemy has been overcome, but now problems within threaten their security, and even their existence as a people. I've said before that we have an enemy who constantly changes tactics. 
The devil will try one way. Sometimes he'll come at us head on. And if that doesn't work, then he'll come and he'll try to divide God's people and destroy us from within. When this happens, what should the people of God do? How should we respond? We dare not defend ourselves in our own strength. We know that. We don't give up. We know that that will not honor God. So what do we as God's people who trust in the true living God, what do we do? Well, we do what we ought to do all the time. Nothing changes. Nothing changes because our God doesn't change. Whether the opposition and the threats come from outside or whether they come from within, we trust in a God who never changes. Therefore, what we ought to do doesn't change. We do what all of God's people in every generation do. We continue to walk in fear of our God. Living in the fear of God causes us to stand in His truth and to continue to share His love, His way. We preserve unity together and we continue the mission of God with each of us living in fear of God and thus standing for His truth and restoring the family ties that we all share. The way this is shown for us in chapter 5 is in very real circumstances of families experiencing hunger and the poor reeling from exploitation which threatens the unity of the people. The, the conflict with opposition from outside has now morphed into division within. What Nehemiah deals with is a set of circumstances and problems that could very well be a modern day crisis. This chapter having to do with exorbitant loans, taxes, abuse of the poor are things we hear about today. God's people are to deal with these things and live our lives in a certain way, knowing that God is to be honored in all ways, at all times, in every circumstance. This passage tells us and it reminds us that as we do great things for the glory of God, we will face opposition both outside and within. So we need to not only be aware of that, we need to be prepared for that and stay true to our calling. As we go about standing guard and serving God, as we go about having a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, even after successfully withstanding all the pressures and the threats from outside the church, internal division is a constant threat to God's people. We need to be aware and willing to deal with it so that God's glory is displayed among us. See, this ultimately is not about you and I getting along. It's ultimately about God's glory being on display in our church and in our lives. The text can be broken into three parts, and that's how we're going to look at it today here 
in chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5 are cries of injustice. Verses 6 through 12 is Nehemiah's reaction to those cries of injustice. And verse 13 is the people's response. In verse 1, we learn that there's a great outcry and the wives are part of it. And the grievance is against their own Jewish brothers. Now this is the first time in the book of Nehemiah that the wives are mentioned and they are together upset over what is happening. The cry of the women that comes from the women is due to the men working on the wall and not in the fields. All the work on the wall means that the fields are not being worked on. They're not being attended to. And not working on the fields means then that the harvest was in jeopardy. And having enough food on the table for their families was now in doubt. Now to be really clear about this, this outcry from the wives, from this group of women who are acting, they are not acting as the world reacts. They were not acting as if the whole world revolved around them and they were not getting what they thought they deserved. They were not reacting because things weren't being done their way. You know the kind of person that I'm talking about. We have shows that, that show a woman who's like that, a show like Bridezilla. We call women who act like that divas. We're not talking about those kind of women. These women in Nehemiah are not like that. They have real concern for their families. Their survival is at stake. And the issue is their Jewish brothers. Fellow Jews who were exploiting other Jews who needed help. And they should have known not to exploit the poor. Deuteronomy 15 told them this was not God's way. And so the complaint comes in three specific ways. There's three specific aspects to this outcry. First, even though the men were working on the walls was a good thing, it's taking them away from working on the fields so the food supply was at stake. That is a legitimate concern when you think of the families. Previously, they had obviously poor growing seasons. There, there was a famine. This caused a famine among the people. To make do, some families mortgaged their land to raise money to, to have grain seeds in order to plant. And if bad times continued and they're unable to pay, they would then lose their land. Losing land and having to pay high interest on loans compelled some families to then sell their children into slavery in order to make payments. The problem, the outcry, was not about the famine. The famine had caused hard times, especially on the poor, but the problem wasn't the famine. The problem was fellow Jews, wealthy Jewish brothers who were exploiting them, taking advantage of the poor, the nobles and the officials who had lent money to them, who then had taken their land and then accepted their children as slaves as repayment. 
And that day, we need to understand, though, how Jewish law and how Jewish culture worked. Lending money was not the problem. Confiscating land because of non-payment was not the issue. Having family members help to repay is not the issue. God had already laid out laws in His Word on how to deal with these things. There was a proper way of handling it. He had laws about mortgaging land. He had laws about children helping to pay off family debt. And in some cases, that's all a family could do to pay off their debt was to get their children involved in it. But after six years of these laws, they came to an end. Everything was to be given back to the owners. A year of jubilee was to be celebrated. And in this circumstance, while the walls are being rebuilt, enemies surrounding the city, should this practice even be going on? Not only were the poor being taken advantage of and people having to mortgage their lands, they were having to pay taxes to the Persians. And the Persians had high tax, the endless tax. You see how all three of these issues could be issues today? Look at how this has affected everybody. They were at odds with one another. God's Word is being ignored. There are those thinking of themselves and not others. The people seem to be helpless to do anything. And the mission of God that God has given is at risk of failing. And not completing the work is a real threat as God's people. It would not honor God. So the people are at risk of imploding here. Taking advantage of people, thinking of ourselves, ignoring God's Word is still a threat to God's people today. People have not changed. God's people, you and I, we have not changed. There's risk of falling apart in the church and being divided among ourselves. There's only one thing that will keep us from falling apart. And it's holding on to and remembering what Nehemiah tells all of God's people. Nehemiah hears of this oppression of the poor and it's dividing the Jews internally. Their focus is moving away from the mission of rebuilding and the oppression of the poor with the high interest rates and the loans. This goes against Scripture. And this greatly angers him in verse 6 we're told where's the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself in this where is putting others above your own interests in this where is sharing the love of God with each other among God's people this is what gets Nehemiah he says very angry God's people are are acting just like all the other nations. They're thinking of themselves. Where's, Where's the holiness? Where's the separating from ungodliness and selfishness and being unselfish as God's people? Nehemiah is angry that there are Jews who would take advantage of other Jews. His anger, we need to understand, is not a flippant reaction. 
He's not infuriated in some mean-spirited way. It's not the kind of selfish anger that arises when you don't get your way. That's not what this is being talked about here. Nehemiah's anger is like Jesus in the temple when the merchants dishonored God by making His house a den of robbers, Jesus said. It's a white, hot zeal for God's glory. It's a white, hot passion for God and His truth. A passion for His holiness and then proper worship and a response that God's people ought to have when we've come to know who God is. J.I. Packer calls it an agonized sense of outrage at behavior that was ungodly in its nature and abusive of other sin in its effect. So, Nehemiah took counsel with himself. He thought really hard about the situation. He contemplated what to do. And remember, we've already learned Nehemiah is a praying man. We saw that in previous chapters. So, Nehemiah takes a step away and he prays to God and he thinks hard about what to do. He could not just stand by and see God's mission come to ruin and God's people fail. No one who truly loves God and His people ever ignores the victimizing of His people or the Lord's work being diverted. So Nehemiah faces the problem head on. And that's what you and I ought to do. Face this problem of internal division head on. The wealthy might get indignant. The poor may think that he's not doing enough. But he dives in for the sake of God's great name and the good of all people. So what kind of motivation then does Nehemiah use? What would you expect him to use? What should our motivation be in times when we're facing internal division? He doesn't pander. He doesn't cajole either side. He doesn't take sides one or the other. He doesn't downplay the issue. He doesn't look for his own interest. And as long as he's safe, then he'll dive in. Look at what Nehemiah says. The motivation he uses to get people to come together and to focus, to refocus, is in verse 9. He says, The things you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? He uses the fear of the Lord to motivate the people. He uses the fear of God to motivate them to do the right thing. To stand on the truth that they know. To remember the biblical Old Testament references of how to treat the poor. And to refocus on what God wants them to do. How God wants them to be. To be a worshipful people who serve Him. Who put Him first in all things. Paige Brown says the motivation of fearing our God should take us beyond the law, keeping of no slavery and no usury, that means applying a high interest on on loans, 
The motivation of fear in God should take us beyond that all the way to generosity just like our God. To fear God means God's people live according to His commandments. We need to walk in fear of Him. Walking means that we're moving in a certain direction all the time, every day. It doesn't say remember and fear God. It says walk in the fear of God. Always moving in one direction that's headed right for our great God all the time, every day. God's commands directing our paths in whatever we do and how we do it Treating people the way God says, treating them how God says we are to treat them, which is the way He has treated us. That means treating people with the same love we've been given and showing that our great God is worthy of us following Him and obeying Him no matter what. But what does it really mean to fear God and live in fear of Him? you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this phrase, the fear of God. And some say it means to respect Him. Have a high respect, a reverence for Him. That's part of it, but it's so much more than that. It's knowing what God can do in His infinite power. Okay, it begins there. Our God has infinite power. It's knowing Him and His infinite power and what He should do to each and every one of us in our sin with that infinite power. His infinite power is fearsome. God is a God of justice who deals with the unjust and the ungodly. His judgment is final. And Scripture describes it as terrifying for all those who are against God. And for God's people, knowing that this should be us, we should be in that camp of the ungodly. We should be facing God's judgment, but instead He's given us mercy and grace and love. This makes us run even closer to Him and not away from Him. Knowing the judgment that we should receive makes us come closer to a God under His protection from His own just judgment. And that's what makes God's grace so precious to us. And that is what God wants us, His people, to share with others. It's like Jesus in the garden before He went to the cross. He was praying to the Father and He said, May this cup pass from Me. He was thinking of that infinite power. He was thinking of that judgment that he'd be taking upon himself. And now this is not God being afraid or being scared of God. The the son was not scared of the father, but Jesus knew the judgment he was enduring for God's people. And he said, may this cup pass from me. But because of the good to come, he said, not my will but yours be done. Jesus knew the magnitude of God's power and He endured it for the sake of those who don't 
deserve God's love and grace. See, Jesus is the perfect display of God's justice and His mercy. The fear of God and the love of God together in God's Son. He was given to God's people so that we too will then fear and love Him also. That same way of thinking, that same thought of God and His infinite power and what they had received. Now remember, God's people have been unfaithful to the covenant. They did nothing to be brought back from exile. This is solely in the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. uh, Nehemiah is expressing the same way of thinking, knowing what God can do, and then receiving His grace should cause God's people to walk in fear of Him and obey Him and be thankful for the love and the mercy that we've received. This causes us then to make a stand for what God says and then to live in light of that love and how He says to then share that love with one another. The Jews are not faithful Yet God brought them back anyways. He was restoring the people and the land, and He gave them grace to live as His people. So they ought to live that way, knowing that His power can be used in judgment or for their good. And that causes God's people to then walk in fear of God and thankfulness because that same power is what sustains us as His people. More than the people dividing, more than facing enemies on all sides, Nehemiah is thinking about God and what He has said to His people. And he reminds the people of that. You see, simply knowing what to do is not enough. Doing what's right will not suffice. It's looking to God and submitting to Him and then living in light of who He is. This keeps us at peace. This unites us as God's people. We don't unite ourselves. We don't just try and get along with each other. We are united in our faith in this God who has infinite power and He uses us to keep us with Him and with each other. You and me trusting Jesus is what binds us together. God's grace given in Jesus is what God's people have in common. This fear of God and thankfulness for God is what compels us to then stand together on God's truth and then share His love. Now, Nehemiah is not standing up on a pedestal He's not being prideful and arrogant and shaking his finger at the other people. In verse 10, he admits that since coming to Jerusalem, he too has been charging people. Maybe not to the degree as the nobles and the officials, and certainly he hasn't exploited anyone like they have, but he was still part of the whole practice. What Nehemiah does by admitting this is incredibly brave and Wise. You see, he's, he admits that he's played a part. 
And what he's doing, see, the people have come to him for an answer. And by him admitting his part in all of this, what he's saying is is that I'm not the solution. I am not the answer to the problem. And he says this publicly, and he calls an end to all of it. He says all of this must stop. Sin has to be rooted out, and we all have to come to submit to God. We have to return things to how God wants them. We have to treat each other like God wants us to treat each other. Nehemiah confesses his errors and is willing to change to make things better for the people so that they'll be protected and the mission, what they're called to do, will be fulfilled. His passion for God compels him to hold the same truth not only on others but upon himself also. May that be a lesson to you and me this morning. To make it as serious as Nehemiah can make it, he calls all the priests in and he makes the people swear to do as they have promised and he gives them a visible curse of what would happen if they don't follow through. Him shaking out his garment represents what God would do if they don't keep their word. God would be rid of them. Look at how the people respond in the second half of verse 13. And all the assemblies said what? Amen. And praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. When true repentance takes place, it leads to the praising of God. When you see the fearsome power of God and you submit to it, it leads you into worship of our great God. That's how it is every time. When people see their sin and what God does with sin, and then He gives them opportunity to repent, it leads them to worship God and thank Him for His grace and mercy. And isn't it still that way today? Can't you and I say that what we do and who we are isn't right? It's not good. When we see that we need to walk and live in the fear of God, it leads us to say, Amen, and praise the Lord. God could have rid Himself of us. He could have let enemies overtake us. He could have let you and I divide over petty things. But He doesn't. Instead, through Christ, He gives us grace and we fear God and we love Him. Through God's Spirit, we then commit ourselves to obeying His Word and serving Him and treating others as we've been treated. When we repent, that leads us to praise Him. That's why Paul calls the Christian life a a living act of sacrifice. It's a living act of worship because we have confessed sin. We know what we deserve. And because of God's grace at work within us, we then walk in submission of God. What was said against us is now working for us, keeping us, restoring us, making us steadfast and faithful. God's love given through His Son. And we say, Amen. So now the question is, you here this morning, each and every one of us, do you fear the Lord?
Are you among those living in fear of the Lord? You know you are if you have received His grace and it causes you to stand in His truth after you have confessed, to then stand in His truth and then share His love. How do you look toward others? Have you repented of your selfishness or are you still interested in what you can gain? Are you concerned for other people's welfare because you know your God is faithful to sustain you and fulfill you? If you can say yes to turning to God, then you know it's God who's at work in you and you can say amen, praise the Lord. You and I, those of us who are part of God's people, who hear the cries of the oppressed, of the vulnerable, of those mistreated, should be the first to face that head on with the truth of who God is, caring for others as God cares for us, looking to their interests, not their own. This is what honors Christ and is the way that God would have you and I to live. Let's go to Him in prayer.